0: Hello there. Good to see you again. Welcome to episode 10 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Pierce McConkie. In 2014, I was randomly paired up with Pierce on my first day of work in a call centre in Northern Ireland. I can still remember how Pierce was completely himself within a corporate work environment, which was very refreshing he was always able to provide an interesting, unique perspective on things and how much time I spent laughing in his company when I worked in the North. We chatted about loads of good stuff, including relationships, dating in the New World, Westerns, the UFC, and the importance of team sports for men. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you help spread the word by recommending it to a friend or sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at the Kevin Doherty Podcast. Thanks for listening. What about you, Pierce? Did I get that right? Are we recording? (laughs) I didn't know because the way you said that. Did I get that right? I was trying. I was trying to get. I was trying to do naughty impersonation. Is that what you said? Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> we'll we'll go again. We'll go <laughs> again.
1: I'm the worst guest ever. <laughs> the, okay, for- the
0: fourth. The fourth wall. The fourth wall keeps getting bust. Do your bit again. <laughs> oh my God! It's so contrived. How are you getting that, man? Yeah really well well as well as you can um given the circumstances what about you uh, strange times but uh like i stopped uh i i'm on a leave of absence now from work um since mid-april and like i don't know you always kind of feel a little bit guilty saying like that you're enjoying the break while everything else is happening but it's been a nice kind of foot off the gas moment if that makes sense because like i don't know the, a lot of the stuff that we've been doing up to a certain point is just momentum and momentum and momentum. And you do this because you've been doing that. And this whole thing has nearly put the brakes on everything for, for me, but for, I assume a lot of people. Um, what about you? How have you been finding it?
1: I'm interested when you say guilt, where, where do you think the guilt comes from
0: and what, in what regard? I, th- I think, uh, just because it's such a serious situation when you look at the news and when you see the death toll that swept across Europe and we were all kind of preparing for the worst. And while it's been bad, it, it's it been bad for certain people, but I've been enjoying it. And it's kind of maybe it's just a Catholic guilt thing where y- you feel a little bit of shame enjoying a situation where others are suffering. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think I think I maybe uh, feel feel the same in in some in some respects. What I do is I have this thing where half of the staff in the company I work for have went on furlough, mm-hmm. so the other half are sort of working from home or sort of nipping into the office and things. And I'm the same as you; but I'm enjoying
0: the time off work. It's nice in a sense, isn't it? Cuz like yeah, I mean, lovely. Anything in it. Like it's it's weird. It's like people look back at uh the blitz in London and it's like, "Oh yeah, it was terrible, but everybody banded together and this is like our struggle. Like this is the the global struggle at the moment." Yeah. But it's a weird thing where at, while we're while we're even in it, most people are enjoying it, which is weird.
1: What? Yeah that's the thing. And then if your circumstances aren't as harsh as somebody else's, like if you don't have a family member, that's, you know, or a friend or somebody that's sort of, you know, you've almost feel like maybe you're not part of the struggle. <laughs> like everybody else is part of the struggle and you're not doing your part. But I mean,
0: it's kind of like if you're, if you're not directly impacted by it, it's hard to, to really feel what exactly like, and like I've talked to, I have friends of friends who have had people impacted by COVID, but it still hasn't reached me. You know, it started, and it's a bit strange because at this stage, I thought I would have heard of somebody directly related to me that got impacted, but it hasn't happened, thank God. Well, I remember when this initially,
1: when, when, when everything started transpiring from Wuhan, I mean, I remember we had a colleague that would come in and give us up-to-date information every morning, like an update of where Things sort of stood, and I remember being really skeptical and kind of naive. And like, I would shut him down. I remember just like to him one day, like, like why do you keep giving us like, this is never, you know, this is never going to reach mainland UK or Ireland. And I kind of I knew very little about COVID, and I I was kind of throwing bro science at him. I thought I was like an expert in the field, whereas like, I mean, it would never, it would never survive in our harsh climate and stuff, and like. Throwing <laughs> Stuff that I just made up on the spot, like, but it was trying to like, you know, trying to justify that it would like it would never reach us, kind of thing. And I remember we did like a we did a, a wager
0: where I actually had to pay him twenty pound. At did what was the what was the wager? Like how wh- how how did you set the criteria? What was the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back?
1: Well, because I was so skeptical about it hitting sort of mainland UK or Ireland. That was the wager where I had said, look, I guarantee there won't be one case in the Republic of Ireland or the UK. And um, I think maybe less than a month later, I got a text. I actually left that job and went and started a new role just in the midst of all this sort of unfolding. And I just got this text notification as soon as I seen the name. Yeah, I just knew there was a bank transfer on the cards.
0: (laughs) Um, For me, like... I didn't take it seriously until it directly impacted my travel plans. And so I had like a week booked in Tenerife. And I think Classic. on that, on, oh man, just old, old school, uh, tank top, wife beater, get a bit of sun and the sunburnt arms. The only step
1: down from Tenerife is Benidorm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there, was, there was no flights to Benidorm. So I said, fuck it, it's either Magaluf or Tenerife. But uh, so that week, um, there was two reported cases in a hotel over there. And it's a weird trick of the mind where if I was advising somebody from outside my perspective, I'd be like, man, there's there's cases over there. It's You can see by Italy that it's much more serious than than you think. You shouldn't go. But because I had invested a minimal amount of money, I was like, fucking it. like it you you rationalize ridiculous stuff to yourself and then when i came back within a week or two weeks everything changed
1: oh you actually went. you went ahead and went to Tenerife. yeah
0: i had a great week it was it was lovely bit of bit of winter sun uh <laughs> didn't come home with a cough or a cold and uh then it was w- what changed my mind when i came home uh, the following Monday, I listened to a couple of podcasts, uh, one from Sam Harris, one from Rogan, and they changed my perspective on it. Then I started to get much more concerned. I mean, when, what's the time frame here? When was your trip to Tenerife? Was this March? End of February, uh, probably got home very, very early March. And then two weeks later, uh, we went into basically full lockdown in the Republic. Had
1: it reached Europe? By the time that you'd went to Tenerife, those cases in Italy and things, was there?
0: Yeah, well, uh, my friend Nige, he was supposed to fly to Rome around the same time, or maybe two weeks afterwards, and his flights were impacted. Italy weren't like everything in Italy started shutting down, and so he had to he had to reschedule or cancel his plans. But Tenerife was still open for business. It was just like it wasn't locked down there was just one hotel in Tenerife that was locked down if that makes sense and so mm-hmm. I was able to rationalize it in terms of I'm not going to that town but that town wasn't that far away in hindsight because of what's transpired I would have taken it more seriously but at the time I was still very flippant about it and like my my whole rationalization at the time if I remember was I was looking at Paddy's Day was in two weeks' time. I did not think Paddy's Day would be cancelled in Ireland, and so my rationalisation was: sure, if Paddy's Day happens, it's coming to Ireland regardless. It's like, what, what can mm. you do? You might as well get away for your last holiday of the year. But uh, we are where we are. Yeah, you knew when some Paddy's Day was cancelled in Ireland
1: that it was, uh, it was serious. Things were, things were serious. Well, I actually lost two holidays as well. I had booked. To go to brussels um in was it march march mid-march um i had i had booked flights with ryanair and i had sort of i was flirting with the idea of still going because it was like i was still googling like is there COVID in belgium like it was the very start of the whole lockdown kind of situation um but i had booked it with ryanair and because they hadn't actually cancelled the flight to Belgium at this stage. Um all I could do was change the date. There wasn't I couldn't get a refund because they hadn't actually cancelled the flight. So I lost the I think it was like seventy pound or something, but I still wasn't entitled to a refund. Um and then we were supposed to go to we were supposed to go to Italy in May for a wedding as well. So we were supposed to go to the Malfi coast and then we had sort of like built this holiday around the wedding so we're supposed to do five days in Rome as well so that all got panned
0: yeah it's it it's kind of a weird one it's like at this point in time it's hard to picture when travel like travel on a weekly or monthly basis will be the norm it probably not till next year anyway i'd say
1: yeah it, it depends who you listen to doesn't it um I was listening to a podcast, I can't remember which podcast it was last week, might have been Rogan, where they were sort of forecasting that like concerts and things in America and anything with with live audiences won't be sort of back on the run again until 2021.
0: Yeah, and it seems over there as well, they have have a unique and unique um, system where states can decide different things. So it's an interesting experiment to look at the states and to see how each place is dealing with it slightly differently. And I think if certain states start to open up without problems, probably other more restrictive states will feel that pressure. But it's it's one of those. It's like we won't know what the right approach is until we're analysing this in a history book five years or ten years at time. That's kind of the way I'm looking at it. How pissed off are people from
1: California right now?
0: They're not happy. They seem to be freaking out. Well, it's, it's like I... Like obviously, I I listen to Rogan a lot, so that's that's the information that I'm getting. I'm getting his perspective on it, his take on it, his guests' take on it. There are still probably a lot of people who agree with the full lockdown, and then there's the more kind of freedom group where it's it's I I always thought it would be an issue for America, something like this where you have to restrict their civil liberties, whereas in Ireland we kind of. I was very, very surprised and pleased how well we all fell into line very, very quickly.
1: Just going back to Rogan there, obviously, I would say, like, the likes of Joe Rogan and the people that obviously feature on his podcast are all involved in the arts. So they're obviously itching to get back more than more than
0: the rest of society. Because um, I know me and you are having a, a great time. I'm loving it. It's, it's the dream. Do nothing, get a little bit of money. Happy days. And it's sunny. I think people would be freaking out here a lot more if the weather was worse.
1: Yeah, I know. It's funny you say that because now it's raining outside and I feel a little bit more miserable. Um, but when it, when lockdown initially happened and I was furloughed from work and I think it was like an average of like 15 degrees every day. So I was just out in the garden topping up my tan every day like, and <laughs> just life was good. What, what I found myself doing as well. We have a group chat in work. So like I'll write into the group chat every so often, just so everybody knows like I'm still there. And and uh, I'll sign into my emails and, and sort of reply to emails and stuff and just make it, try and make it look as if I'm
0: doing a little bit, even though I'm not supposed to, but it's kind of like, oh look, I'm still involved. I'm still, you know. It's a weird one. Like the way I'm looking at this, we, we could be back to work at any stage. A lot of people won't be back to work at any stage and they don't even know it, which is the crazy thing. But I don't think we'll ever get a break like this again. So I'm just trying to disconnect from it. And whenever work wants us back, I'll go back. But we'll never get this type of time again to unwind.
1: I'm not anticipating going back to work probably until after the summer. I mean, they've talked about extending this for another four months. I'm involved in out-of-home advertising, so outdoor advertising. So there's no real market for me to be back at home, back at work. Sorry, you know my business is out of home advertising with people out on the streets. You know, taking in billboards and and you know bus stop advertising and stuff like. So there's nothing. Yeah. You know,
0: bringing me back to work now makes absolutely no sense. Doc, no, absolutely. I'm kind of in a similar boat. Like I, I deal with a lot of high end restaurants in Dublin and at the moment it's hard to picture when You're
1: a loan shark, aren't
0: you? <laughs> uh, it's hard to like picture when restaurants will be properly open for business again because while I think the government is saying something along the lines of um, July they can operate with new social distancing policies in place, the whole idea of a restaurant experience is is the full experience and it's the, it's the atmosphere of the place. It's the whole from starter to do, to dessert. It's hard to imagine people paying top dollar for an experience where the restaurant's half empty and everybody's wearing face masks in between bites. So I don't I don't know what that looked like.
1: You get starter, main, on dessert, do you?
0: <sighs> it depends. I, I'm not that much of a fancy eater. Although I have started uh, doing a little more, a bit more cooking since uh, since we did get locked down. I suppose like everybody else. Um, what's your what's your go-to meal at the moment? What kind of things are you making? The, the thing that I was most impressed with was uh, I made a, a lovely lamb rogan josh Indian there last night. I was I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of strange as well. Like I suppose for, for me and you, we're we're kind of at different ends of I suppose like a life experience at the moment because at the start of this whole lockdown i made the decision to move my girlfriend in with me which was a big move forward in such a weird time and then you've kind of had the opposite side of the same coin um would you be able to talk a little bit about that about me losing my wife in a car crash oh jesus christ
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um yeah, I had uh, been involved in a long-term relationship, I think the, I think if you had any sort of issues that you hadn't ironed out in your relationship or any sort of unresolved issue, I think once you're in lockdown with each other, it really puts it under a microscope. Um, and I think that's definitely the case what happened um, in my life. So I've I went back up home, up to. Uh, to her own so i'm self-isolating with a family and um, so a lot of people are trying to adapt to this new way of living where you're sort of isolated and you know you aren't able to to get out and see people and and uh you know once you're in a long-term relationship and now you're in lockdown it's kind of a new i don't know i
0: think it's just a, a lot more it's a lot more difficult obviously yeah it's it's it amplifies everything and as well it's like it, i think especially if you're if you're a man and you enter into a long-term relationship what tends to happen with a lot of fellas is they'll lose they'll lose nearly the connections that they would have had before they entered in because they don't put as much emphasis on it they always think oh the lads will be there um Whereas they might kind of invest much more time in just the relationship itself. And what seems to happen if you talk to lads once they finish up, they find themselves in a strange situation where they've put all their eggs in one emotional basket. And sometimes they find it hard to nearly readjust to that single life. Whereas I feel a lot of women seem to handle that balance a little bit better. They seem to still keep their friends while pursuing a longer term relationship it seems it's it seems to just be the way it is in general absolutely um
1: that actually i remember like having my first relationship at the tender age of like I 17 or 18 and i i mean i completely lost once my relationship ended i remember it ended just before summer kicked off just before going to university and i hadn't you know, I hadn't bothered with any friends. I was in a relationship for maybe a year and a half, two years, and I'd lost so many sort of friendships. You, you lose, not that you lose interest, but you just, as you say, you put all your eggs into that one basket. And I remember, I remember when the relationship ended and I was in a really bad place. And say, summer it just kicked off and I thought, you know what, Like this is going to be, it'll be fine. I'll have all my friends. Like It's going to be a great summer. And I remember like, reaching out to to friends that you hadn't spoken to in mean, maybe like weeks or months, and they all just blanked me, and that was a big wake up call for me. I think since then I've always
0: been able to to be able to find the 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 balance when you when you get into a long term relationship. It it's great that you got that wake up call. It's great that you got that wake up call because I think what does happen to some lads is they're in one long-term relationship since when they were young, and that's the only thing they know. And if that does end in their mid-20s, in their late 20s, then they're at a point where they have no social capital left with their friends because their friends know that they treated them as a secondary source of emotional support, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I remember, this was back, I think, 2010. So this is like 10 years ago. So I remember, like, sending out texts to the friends, like, hey, guys, where are we going this weekend kind of thing? <laughs> like, getting get, get nothing coming back. And I remember being so desperate. Do You know, like, whenever you end a relationship, it's all about making the other person jealous. And you do that through, obviously, going out and having those different experiences. And, you know, like, nobody would answer my texts. And I remember, like, ringing my friend's house phone and his mom answering the phone, like, and I'm like, uh. I mean, is Oshin in there?
0: Uh, and uh, I could hear him, like, in the background, like, pretend he wasn't there. Oh, that's, like, the worst feeling in the world. Like It's such a strange one as well, because, like, relationships end for a myriad of reasons. And when you become single again, like, I suppose one of the things that might be exciting is the fact that you're looking at, oh, I can start into the kind of the dating scene again. But... The dating scene now is the same as nearly every other, if you want to call it an industry. Like, the, nobody knows what the hell it looks like from here on in.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think there's something to be said as well about dating apps and, and sort of the, uh, the likes of your Tenders and your Bumbles and stuff as well. Like, I remember having, when Tinder first sort of came on the scene, sort of four or five years ago, I remember having a profile and. You know seeing how much it's changed in such a short space of time was such a wake-up call for me um i mean i felt like when when it first sort of when it first came about people were sort of more open to the idea it was something new it was a novelty and you know people were a lot more open to having you know conversations with each other and you know talking to somebody you would never sort of have the chance to talk to um and then I think, like, now, it seems to be, I think the likes of Instagram and stuff, since it took off, most, if you're on a dating profile now, like a dating app, most people's profiles seem to be, like, a gateway into, like, their Instagram or or other social media platforms. I don't think anybody else, I don't think anybody's on there for, like, you know to find love or or even open to to dating people it's kind of a strange one you probably have to go back on to have a look for yourself like but it's
0: it's a different dynamic huh? yeah I can't really put me off um yeah it's it's kind of it's a strange one because it's like if you're thinking about it for the next 6 months how do you meet people naturally you can't strike up a a kind of fun and engaging conversation wearing a face mask while you're 2 meters away from somebody
1: Yes, and then I think the unpredictability of when this is all going to end as well. It's hard to like have a conversation with somebody and keep it going, keep that dialogue going, that communication going. And then you know you mightn't even
0: see each other for four or five months. That is so true, man. Like uh, one of the lads I know, he he met a girl just before the lockdown, and like he was really interested in her. And since the lockdown proceeded to take place he got to the point where she wanted to meet up with him after the lockdown but it's kind of like once you've got to that point while you're in lockdown the conversation kind of hits an iceberg because that's where you've been trying to get it to and once you've achieved that then it's like okay I don't want to fuck this whole thing up but when am I going to see her and then it's weird because if you don't have chat to talk about like interesting chat you feel like oh what's the point in messaging her but then her perspective might be sure you haven't shown interest in the last two or three weeks fuck you buddy it's a weird one yeah like you can't
1: you know have all this momentum and have like weeks of chat and then just sort of
0: just let it it go there and then pick it back up again once the lockdown's over and then as well it's kind (laughs) of And then as well, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like when you're in secondary school and you've been texting a girl in the other school and you mightn't see her for a couple of weeks and then you're face to face and it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, we've been, we've all yeah. we've been doing is communicating online. And then you're, you're faced with the, the, the like somewhat challenging task of socially interacting with somebody after no practice of socially interacting with new people for four months. It's a weird one. Yeah.
1: Do you remember that as well, like like when you were younger, through your teenage years, like you would, as you say, text somebody from another school? And like nowadays, there's so much, there's like there's there's so much options out there, you know what I mean? It's like, if one conversation goes stale after an hour, like you're on to the next one, whereas back sort of 10, 15 years ago, when I was at school, you got somebody's number, you maybe met them at a disco or something, or or a friend passed a number on and you were texting that person religiously like for weeks and months until the next disco kind of thing and it was just like there was a real buzz about it whereas I don't think you get that anymore <laughs> I don't know if that's you, you lose that with the age the older you get or is it just this new dynamic of dating
0: What I really enjoyed when I was younger is the idea of the chase so the idea that you might meet a girl through a friend and there's like a mystique about this person where you you know a little bit about her but you're finding out information off different people and then through a little bit of social interaction you're seeing if, if she's a cool girl and then eventually you will find out if she likes you or if she doesn't and there's this kind of buzz about the whole thing whereas if you're single and you're on dating apps at the moment it's as you said it's like you unless something really really piques your interest very quickly you're probably going to move on to the next thing and the weird thing is that, like the first thing that's going to pique your interest as a man is physical appearance so it's like you're chasing down rabbit holes but you might not be finding what you want through this weird strategy but it's like it's one thing i I, I do miss to an extent like the idea of the chase
1: yeah it kind of reminds me of like netflix and streaming services like how many times have you put a film on a netflix after like like five ten minutes of searching and you put something on and if it's not picking your interest after five or ten minutes you just turn it off
0: it's so true it's i like uh, our attention span i think over the last five or ten years seems to have dipped very very significantly to where if something isn't incredibly engaging it's tough to get through and because there's so many options it's it's nearly like you're surrounded by information but you're thirsty for knowledge in a sense because it's like what do you invest your time in
1: exactly like do you remember do you have memories of walking around an version store on a friday or saturday and spending an hour trying to find the right movie and you bring it home and i mean if the movie's terrible you're not feeling it's tough like you have to like, you've no other option like you have to
0: sit there for two hours and watch that movie absolutely man it's like that whole thing never judge a book by its cover back in the old Extravision or blockbuster days that's the only thing you could do it's hilarious just thinking about it now actually uh you know in terms of like investing in the market and like uh started going oh yeah this technology will always be around my dad bought shares in Extravision back in the day because when he saw tapes he was like that's it we've reached the pinnacle
1: Oh god! <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> uh, it, was, it was like uh, Netflix originally. Like it was like, did they post videos or DVDs through the post? And and then I think they anticipated that everything was going to go towards streaming. And I think Activision just were last. They they sort of beat Activision to the punch, did they? And Activision just went yeah. under. Then
0: yeah, I think I think um, <sighs> Netflix if I can remember it from uh being in the States, it was like you'd order it and then there was drop boxes to bring it back to and you could send it back. But then it it's it seems to be the same with any sort of industry. It's like the first mover, the one who takes the most risk at the time, reaps so much reward because you, you people don't talk about streaming services to an extent. Like if you're talking about streaming, most people just say, Is it on Netflix?
1: Yeah. I know people just don't watch ordinary TV anymore. Do they? Like I, I look at my phone and I have maybe four or five different platforms where I can watch stuff. I've got Disney. I've got Netflix. I've got Showbox. I've got Amazon prime. Like I'll
0: rarely sit down and watch actual TV. I think it's dead now. I haven't watched something like I haven't had channels in God knows how long. Um, like the there's one kind of thing where watching anything you want gives you the freedom to choose the time you want to engage with content but one thing we do miss out on is remember like when people used to watch the sopranos on a weekly basis and you could go like after the weekend and talk about the episode and then there was that again that excitement of the next episode you're like oh I wonder what Tony's going to do I wonder what's going to happen the next time he goes sees the psychiatrist whereas it, it's nearly similar to dating where back when there was probably less options to engage with people there was more of a, an excitement and novelty around it whereas because there's nearly an overabundance of initial options now if you are dating online it's, it's like where do you start and can you can you get that feeling every single time it's it's a hard one to balance
1: yeah bring in like Netflix you know like if you watch a, you watch a thriller movie on Netflix and once it's finished it throws up more options there like maybe you'll like this maybe something like that should happen on a date map like uh, hey I know you've been talking to Claire for two or three weeks.
0: Uh, maybe you'll like uh, Rebecca you know something like that might work. I've always thought I don't know how they'd actually execute it but imagine if like if do you know when you're buying stuff on Amazon if there was previous user reviews on dating <laughs> apps that would be so funny <laughs> <laughs> I, I would get to read some of my reviews oh man <laughs> you'd really get a sense of who you are from that person's perspective it would it would be a real eye opener like I don't I think that would be pretty uncomfortable for everybody yeah absolutely absolutely and um, just just on the subject of films like have you watched anything in the last couple of months that uh that's worth talking about or worth recommending um i watched a good one last night it's an old one though i think i've watched it like four or five times
1: um prisoners hugh jackman jake Gyllenhaal.
0: i've only seen it once but from what i remember incredible film
1: it's so rewatchable really as well. Like that was, as I said, I've watched it four or five times and I just sat, I, I mean, I could watch it again.
0: Hall actually, now I'm, now I'm remembering it. Hall is exceptional in it. He's such a fucked up character. He's like one, he's the detective, isn't he?
1: He's detective Loki, uh, sort of slick back hair and like a neck tattoo. Uh, doesn't do things by the book sort of, uh,
0: yeah, is there any good brilliant. detective that does things by the book?
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, uh, you know, especially if they have, like, an Irish surname.
0: <laughs> What's that a reference, though?
1: It's like those old american movies and TV shows, like, like Fitzpatrick, you blew up half the town! <laughs> damn, it, the, yeah, the,
0: damn it, McNulty! Damn it, McNulty! Damn it, McNulty, the primary school's on fire! Yeah, but I got my man! No, you didn't! Exactly. McNulty the captain wants to see you. You do a map the city. Oh god. Um for me, like uh in the last couple of weeks, uh I've gotten back into Westerns. Um I watched I I, I think I, I watched like what is my favourite film of all time there two weeks ago. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Have you seen it? Never seen that. Oh man, it's one that i highly recommend. Like made in nineteen sixty six. If you watch it today, you could be watching a Tarantino film. Like it's so stylish, it, it goes against the grain for what you would have expected a western to be at the time. And like people looked at the the genre of spaghetti westerns, they looked at it um, as an inferior product to the American western. Like even um, you know Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Once Upon a Time in America. Yes, he goes on to make a spaghetti western that's somewhat successful, but everybody at the time was like, if I enter into the spaghetti Western world, it's a step away from Hollywood and it's a step down. Whereas Clint went over there, worked with Sergio Leone and it's just magic. Like it's, it's, it's a tremendous film. I don't want to go too much into the detail, but like Sergio Leone does so much with silence and, close-up facial perspectives but the the score is just incredible like Ennio Marcone like a genius with music it, it's something that like when everything opens up one thing I really really want to do hopefully by the end of the year is have you ever heard of uh, where they they'll play a film but then they'll have an, an orchestra like a live orchestra accompanying it yes I'd love to do that for The Good, The Bad and The Ugly because Like, the music is exceptional, and, like, seeing that live, uh, I just think it would be such a class experience.
1: What do you call the composer again? I think he did live shows down in Dublin, because I I remember, it wasn't the good, the bad, and ugly. It was something else that I watched that he scored, and I think I Googled him to see what else he had done, and it just, it brought up,
0: obviously, that he was in, in Dublin doing concerts. That was his effectively his last world tour i was sick and i couldn't get, couldn't get a ticket um it was like like hundreds of euro to to see it live um but like it, it would have been exceptional and like he's he's scored a lot of different movies um but like if in terms of the best western or a western i'd recommend i definitely recommend the good the bad and the ugly but uh last night I watched another Clint Eastwood film uh, a film made in 1992 so good the bad and the ugly is 66 and then he made Unforgiven in 1992 have you seen that one
1: I I've, I've yet to watch a western like the most western thing I've watched
0: would be True Grip with Matt Damon <laughs> <laughs> um it, it's it's a genre that I love but what's class about Unforgiven is that it's nearly like an anti-Western. So in Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood plays like an aged outlaw who's trying to adjust to life after the excitement of being this cold-blooded killer. And he kind of has a somewhat normal life trying to to raise a family and he has like a small farm. And he gets offered the chance to collect on a bounty for two cowboys who uh, disfigured a whore in the like, one of the local towns in um, Wyoming, a place called uh, Big Whiskey, and Gene Hackman plays uh, like, this kind of corrupted sheriff, but he's a really, really fascinating character, but the class thing about it is it nearly goes against everything that the standard Western uh, expresses, so like, in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly uh, Clint Eastwood's character, Blondie I think he might kill while he's supposed to be the good in the title, he he kills like eleven men in the film, and does it in such a cold blooded fashion where you're like it doesn't even register that that's a real kill. Whereas Clint Eastwood's character in Unforgiven, he's torn by all this regret for just being a fucking bastard in life, and he he talks in detail about moments that still haunt him, and it shows. Uh, Kind of different things about like the the cowboy hero trope, where like being in the great outdoors is a is an amazing thing every single day. Whereas a lot of the time in Unforgiven, there's just torrential rainfall, so it kind of takes that away. And I suppose the overarching premise of the whole thing is that um, while violence is an answer, it's not the right answer because no matter how violent you are in a situation, it doesn't change the other violence that came before it's kind of the idea that just because the world is engulfed in this violent behavior your violence doesn't solve anything like it's a fascinating film really really good you've sold it to me um i'd, I'd highly recommend it just because as well like i i think clint's a fucking master like he like he he acts in it he produced it and he directed it and as well, I think he got access to the script maybe 15 or 20 years earlier, and he said, I want to get to an age where I can play the lead character. It's it's exceptional. I, I would actually recommend both of those films. Watch them over a weekend, and if you don't like them, they're the ones, they're the two movies, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and Unforgiven, that I'd recommend to anybody if they were curious about the genre, but they don't really know where to start i think those films are, are two kind of opposite end of the spectrums where it's like the high point of the glorious western and then the reality of the aged killer and how he actually is human and filled with regrets about the the terrible things he experienced and did in his past
1: well i, I think the the common misconception and i don't know what puts me off westerns as I just assume it's like some gunslinger
0: rolling in the town and like kicking somebody through a saloon door. That's the standard type of western. Like what what was a big issue with a lot of westerns is the characters were very, very one dimensional and very, very clean cut. Like any cowboy that you've seen, like he's spent in theory, he spent weeks of time out in the open range like, moving herds of animals through prairie. So he should be filthy, he should be unshaven, but if you look at the early Westerns, or, like, the classic Western, it looks like they're putting on their stuff for the first time. It's like a cleanly-pressed suit, a very, very shiny gun, and then they're so kind of, they're inhumanly good, where they do things just for the good of it. There's no kind of self-interest, and then the villains are very, very one-dimensional. It's like they're just bastard outlaws and there's no depth to their character. It never explores how they got to that point or why they do the things they do in the film. Whereas Unforgiven is just a much more human take at the whole thing. And then The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is just this, it's just a masterpiece of cinema. I just, I I can't say enough good things about that one. Yeah, I like my cowboys.
1: Filthy and unshaven.
0: That's the type of porn you're into.
1: Yeah, with assless chops as well.
0: <laughs> um, I suppose moving on a bit, uh, have you been following the UFC in the last couple of weeks?
1: I have. It's the only sort of sport that we can follow. So yeah, heavily, heavily. What did you make of two four nine? I thought it was great. It's the first card that I've watched... How long have I been watching UFC? Maybe 10 years. First card in 10 years where I've watched all of the prelims as
0: well as the main
1: card. Like, it was so
0: stacked. It is the best card I've seen in a while. In terms of, like, the main event, I suppose, very quickly, because it is a thing of the past now, and I'd like to maybe talk about some exciting upcoming fights. But what did you make of the stoppage for Cruz v. Cejudo? What we were taking that? I thought I thought it was justified. I know the ref, Keith Peterson, took a lot of hate for it,
1: but I mean Dominic Cruz is one of the best analysts in the game, if not the best analyst. He's always sort of, um, you know, people say he's got the best fight IQ of any other fighter. So like for him to be so openly critical of the referee. It just seemed a bit unjust for me because he did. He took, I think they counted 11 unanswered shots. And I know he was on his way back up. Um, but like that kind of split decision making that you need to be one of the top referees. I mean, if you're going over to stop that fight in that split decision, it's getting back up, I mean, it's very hard to, to, to pull away or to make a different call in the heat of the moment. So I think, I think, I think, I think it was just, and I think. Donna Cruz has been quite critical as well, um, of Keith Peterson, his his whole character as well. I think he did a real character assassination in the aftermath and accused him of being an alcoholic and smelling of booze and cigarettes.
0: Yeah, I didn't particularly like that interview he gave on Ariel Helwani where he he went into that and even his post fight interview to an extent. I suppose my perspective on it, and it, it is probably a little bit biased because I love Dominic Cruz as a person. I think he's so fascinating. And like when I was watching the fight, my take on it was as the ref, you're supposed to know how long there is left in the in the fight or in the round. He stopped it with 2 seconds to go and at that weight, at that bantamweight weight, it's not that Saúdo's blows were life-threatening, but it's very very hard to to point a finger at the ref, because hindsight saw twenty twenty. like, in the heat of the moment, if I'm taking, my liking for Cruz, out of the situation, he just got dropped by a knee, and fair enough, he was coming up to his feet, but he took so much, unanswered damage, that, I can see why he stopped it as well, I think it's just, I wanted to see, how the next three rounds went, I think that's just it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the next three rounds, were gonna be, you know, I don't think there were going to be good rounds for Cruz. I've never been overly impressed watching Cruz, neither. I mean, they talk about his unorthodox footwork and, like, his brain and stuff. But, like, going back to his last fight against Cody Garbrandt, like, I've never seen somebody exposed as much in my life. Like, Cody Garbrandt just took him apart. And it was just... It was embarrassing to watch. I think at one stage, Cody Garbrandt was doing the robot and breakdancing and stuff during rounds. Um, and I think... Like, the Cejudo fight, I think, like, when you watch him, like, sort of, I don't know, like, trying to find the distance and, like, dancing in and out. It just looks, it just, it just looked so ineffective. And anytime he did get in range, um, you know, when he got past those frigging leg kicks of Sohudo's and got in range, he didn't offer anything. He just he just looks light on the hands as well. Like, he doesn't look, like, he, he never looked like he was going to,
0: like, he was going to do anything of any, you know... I think as well the other the other the other way to look at it as well is Sehudo is so impressive as in like he changed the way he fought since he fought Marlon Rise. Like in that fight he ate leg kicks. In this fight he was dishing them out. Like I, I always find it really, really interesting when a fighter can change their style to to suit the fight ahead of them, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I think that's much of the same. What happened in the in the uh, the coach with Gaethje and and Ferguson? Gaethje just looked so measured. Um, one thing they did pick up on, obviously, was the coach. Is it Whitman, Trevor Whitman? You call his coach,
0: Trevor Whitmore? Where he yeah. had
1: actually, yeah, where he was, he had told Gaethje to take the shave ten percent off the punches. Um. I think he said, what did he say? Like you're trying to take his head. You're trying to kill him with every shot. Yeah. And from then on in, Gaethje just looked unbelievable. And I think like we've seen Gaethje rush in before and get stopped and get a bit excited. And I think he just looked
0: so polished. Yeah. Um. And Whitmore has come out and said, he's the most coachable athlete I've ever worked with, which is fascinating to hear because like, it is probably the biggest thing at the highest level. Can you make those incremental improvements and not let your own ego get in the way to some extent? I'm I'm really, really fascinated with the prospect of him fighting Khabib. And I know there's a recency bias where when you see such an impressive performance against somebody who you thought would be a big, big issue for Khabib, you're always looking at, oh, now, now Gaethje's the next big thing that's going to be able to do it. But... I'm probably not taking into account. Just what a monster Khabib is as well. Like Khabib dictates where the fight takes place. I don't know can Gaethje stuff his takedowns. Yeah, like I'm, I'm guilty. I never give Gaethje his props. Like um,
1: until that fight, like I never thought he was in the picture um, at all. Um, like I remember, like Gaethje was regarded as the Homer Simpson, like this punch drunk fighter. And it was, like, I, just, his performance against Tony Ferguson was just, it was unbelievable. What's, um,
0: what's really interesting is that, um, like, I visited one of the lads in Canada in September and we watched a fight night where, at that time, Gaethje fought Cowboy. And if you fast forward, what is it, nine or ten months maybe since that time? Eight or nine months. And Gaethje is now the interim title holder at the lightweight division and Cowboys on the prelim card. It's crazy how timing and like talent is a huge thing as well. You can't argue that Gaethje isn't a superior fighter at the moment than Cowboy. But it's amazing how important timing is in the sport because Gaethje the only guy who put himself forward on the off chance that Khabib or Tony wouldn't make weight or wouldn't be able to fight. And because he yeah. bet on himself, he's now the one calling the shots to some extent. Isn't it so funny just, like, how quick
1: the demise of Cowboy Cerrone has been, like? Yeah. Like, you can't it's... gauge, like, how... You can't gauge where a fighter is, like, once they fought Cerrone. Like, even the comeback with McGregor and stuff was short-lived, because you're, like... Like, now Cowboy's lost
0: his last three or four, I think. He, he just seems to be the weapon of the division, doesn't he? Yeah, it's tough, because, like, I really like him as a character. I think he's a, he's a really cool guy when you hear him interviewed, but... At this stage, you have to think, what's the risk to reward if Cowboy fights another five times? Does he take two or three brutal beatings? And does that affect him long-term? Or should he be able to nearly have advisors outside him to say, maybe it's time you you step away from the fight game? Because it's one of the hardest things, I imagine, for a fighter to give up that identity. But so many of them fight past where they should.
1: Yeah, I actually that's I think about that every time I watch a cowboy fight. I just find myself thinking, like, he shouldn't be in there. I think he's definitely – he needs advisors. He needs his coach or, I don't know, the he need, somebody needs to be telling him, you know, it's time to hang up the gloves kind of thing because, you know, a fighter, the likes of Sirona, who's always so game, is never going to, you know, take that decision himself. I think he's been completely mismanaged by Dana White as well on the UFC where they're usually so... Like, the likes of... Like, I remember when Chuck Liddell fought Tito Ortiz last year, and they looked at Dana White to sort of promote this thing. He was just adamant. He was like, no. Like, he cared too much about the likes of Chuck Liddell. Um, Whereas it's just the complete opposite with the likes of Cerrone. I think the UFC should... Like, he's on three losses now. Maybe they should maybe make the call for him to say, kind of, you know
0: what, like, this is maybe... This is, you're, you're at the end of your career now. I think it's a really, really tough thing as well for a fighter. Like, it, it's such a a sad, repetitive story where a fighter still thinks he has it. And even if they've lost that second in reaction time or that explosive power, they still have to believe that they can conquer the world. And it, it just seems to be a tale as old as time where fighters fight on well past when they should. Like, the only person that comes to mind that's, that's stepped away from the sport and taken very, very little damage that comes to mind for me is GSP.
1: Yeah, yeah. But then we see him with GSP.
0: Like, these fighters can't... It's their ego brings
1: them back in. Like, GSP came back two years ago to fight Michael Bisping for the title.
0: And... But, but what, I, what I'd say about that is GSP looked better fighting Bisping than he had. Like, he came back after a long layoff and he didn't lose anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. But then, I know Bisping was the,
1: uh, he was the champion at that stage, but then Bisping went on to get absolutely annihilated about two weeks later by Gastelum. You know, so like, it wasn't as if GSP was sort of, you know, coming back and starting where he left off. Like, I think the caliber of a fighter between the likes of Michael Bisping or who, who would GSP have fought back in the day like Nick Diaz and what if was BJ Penn welterweight or no?
0: Yeah I think like it's one it, like I've only properly gotten into the UFC in the last couple of years so I, while I've watched like historical fights I wouldn't have watched a lot of GSP's fights alive you know what I mean I've only seen uh, I've only re-watched them if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I think just the notoriety and the sort of uh with,
0: with McGregor sort of especially over here created like an influx of, of UFC fans, didn't it? Absolutely. Like that's that's why I jumped on the train. It was just watching watching McGregor's rise was so exciting because it was like it was like something out of a film. Like if if you were watching it in a film you'd be like, This is too unrealistic, like like a character so larger than life and then being able to say these outrageous things, but being able to like the biggest thing I love about McGregor is the fact that he he never is dwarfed by the moment. He rises to the occasion, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. He sort of uh excels, doesn't he? When he's when he's most under pressure. It's like the feeling you get when you're watching a McGregor fight, I kinda it's like when I'm watching an Arsenal match. If I'm watching Arsenal in an FA Cup final, every pass I'm sort of like you've got butterflies and you're nervous. It's the same with watching a McGregor fight from the moment he steps in there.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like you're you're a bit more emotionally invested in what happens to him. To yeah, completely. completely. Um can I you mentioned like football there. Can I ask like with the UFC it it seems to be like I loved football and I was obsessed with it for so many years but at the moment my focus seems to have turned a little bit more to mixed martial arts. Like uh, why why do you enjoy the UFC or MMA? I, I've i always been, like, a casual
1: fan. I remember being in uni 10 years ago, and, you know, one of the guys had the PlayStation game or the Xbox game. And ever since then, I've always been, like, sort of a casual fan. But I touched on it briefly there with uh, McGregor. I was sort of watching McGregor's rise sort of 2014, 15, where I became heavily invested in it. Um, and I think it's just, like, the... So much of what we consume now with podcasts, the likes of Rogan and stuff, it's it's unavoidable. You know what I mean? Eighty percent of what he talks about or alludes to is always MMA, and I just it, obviously when you're listening to JRE in bed every night, like like even like I can't remember like GSP's opponents and stuff. So like I'm guilty of not knowing you know anything sort of before the McGregor era, and um, it's just sort of what what you hear from the likes of Rogan or.
0: So do you think do you think it's just the the content that you're exposing yourself yourself to on a daily or a weekly basis is influencing your love of the sport or are there certain aspects of the sport that appeal to you?
1: I think so. Like, if a stand up comedian or anybody was on like the likes of the Rogan uh, podcast, even if they're not in MMA, it's the first thing they sort of try to relate to Joe about. It always even if they have no connection to MMA, you always find you're talking to some you know, not like somebody who has absolutely no investment in it. Yeah. And trying to break it down for them.
0: Uh, what I've what what's really, really appealed to me is that maybe unlike football, you can get to know what the fighters are thinking because I've heard them have long form conversations with people and because they appear on different podcasts. So I think you get a better insight into how they think about the sport and also what an intense world it is to be a fighter. Another thing that, that really, really appeals to me is that I suppose, unlike again, if you're looking at the premier league, premier league players earn such a, a vast amount of money every single week that it's hard to relate to them to some extent because they have such a different life, whereas the life of a fighter is so week-to-week, month-to-month, fight-to-fight. And if you look at um, a Premier League team at the end of a season, you might not have much to play for in the last three games if you're mid-table. Every fight is crucially important to a fighter because it dramatically affects your next rankings, your next fight, but also... like. It's it's a it's a fact that if you have a bad fight, you could die in the cage. It hasn't happened in the UFC, but there's a real possibility of long term brain damage or serious serious injury. That yeah, they're essentially fighting for their livelihoods. Not even like if they sustain an injury in
1: there as well. Like if I mean if you if you get into like a habit of two or three losses and you're building up these losses, you know you could get cut from the UFC. And where do you go from there? You know, go down to other promotions where you're going to get paid less or. A lot of these guys aren't really well educated either. Like so few of them go into, you know, analyst work afterwards. Like there's not really a path afterwards for so these guys. You know, if they get in the habit of losing, essentially, like where do they go from there?
0: It see, and it it seems to be as well compared to playing a team sport. It seems to be such a a personal thing. Like everything is like. Obviously, you have your team and you have your camp, but once that ring, once that octagon door is shut, it's up to you. So it's like, it's really, really fascinating watching the weight of the pressure and how it affects different people. It's like, in real day-to-day life, what's the most anxiety-driving thing that most people encounter? It's fucking doing a best man speech. It's presenting at work. It's public speaking versus cage fighting. It's just such an extreme way to live that I find it fascinating.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think with like team sports, you know, especially football. I mean, if you're having a bad day, an off day, you've got ten other people to lean on, don't you?
0: Absolutely. Like you, it, it, you, yeah. Even if you have an off day, the team can perform and win. Whereas fighting, it, it's completely up to you. Like it, it's, it's just a different thing. Um, you're like me. You're an Arsenal fan. Um. What's your take on Arsenal at the moment? I know football currently isn't on, but what's your perspective at the moment on the team?
1: I'm excited. Like, I remember like, before this all happened, um, Arteta seemed to be getting the, the most out of the team. They seemed to be heading in the right direction. Um, I I, think I remember being excited at the end of Orson Wenger's tenure as well. When they brought in Unai Murray, and I think I was the most excited I'd been as an, of an Arsenal fan in a long time. I don't know how that worked out. When Arteta first got the job, I was really sceptical. Um, obviously, like a lot of people, I wanted somebody with a bit more, a bit more pedigree. But he seems to he seems to be doing well. He seems to be, you know, taking them in the right direction. I think they just, I mean, he's got players there from even Wanger's campaign, so I'd love to see what he could do with his own team.
0: Yeah, like for me I religiously followed Arsenal up until Fenger left. Then when I saw the start of the Emery reign, I was excited, but I didn't have the same investment. I dunno, it was like it was like something changed for me. And I think once once results started taking a real dip, I found that uh, I was putting so much nearly emotional worth in watching a team every weekend that was just disappointing me and I, I just had to nearly nearly disengage a little bit where i was like i can't let a fucking team in london's performance infect or affect how i am for the next two or three days but arteta coming in and i suppose the global break from football that we're now experiencing has made me miss the week-to-week engagement with the team if that makes sense so i think when football starts up again i will i think i'll have more of an appreciation for what it is and what it was to me because once it's taken away once something's taken away in this weird time we're living in you you realize what's important to you and what you love and it's kind of like do more of the things that bring you joy and like back in the day arsenal used to bring me so much joy
1: yeah, it's kind of like taking a little break in a relationship, isn't it? For you? Once this is all over, you'll
0: be you're, you're ready to love again. Yeah, and there's a there's a handsome new man at the helm. His hair is ridiculous.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember like when he when he played for Arsenal, and you do post match interviews. Like, like he just there wasn't a hair out of place. He's just he's just pristine. Like, have you ever seen Mikel Arteta in HD? No. It's I mean it's a sight to <laughs> behold. It's like, do you know like when you're playing a wrestling game or something and like the default, like you're creating a character and it's like the default man that you begin with. Let's just make a
0: That's so true. Uh, I suppose the thing as well that I, I I find exciting is that once it starts up, even if thing like you're looking at Liverpool, you're looking at City and you're like, how can you catch those incredibly dominant teams, especially Liverpool at the moment? But that's not necessarily what's important to me with Arsenal. It's like if I can see incremental improvement over the next two or three seasons, I'll be very, very happy. Because you just you can't expect them to all of a sudden be at the level of a Jurgen Klopp team of a Pep Guardiola team.
1: Yeah, I don't even get carried away with Liverpool. I know Liverpool are probably the best team in Europe and definitely England at the minute, but. I just, I just feel like it's gonna be short lived. I can't see Liverpool going on to become like this dynasty again.
0: I just feel like once Klopp and his, his time, you know, comes to the end of Liverpool, I think it's just gonna free fall again. I think it depends how long Klopp invests in Liverpool, and then especially that style of play. It's very, very hard to demand that season in, season out. Like you've seen it a lot. You've seen it nearly with every single Guardiola team where he works them to the bone and achieves results in the first two or three seasons, but after that there's a breaking point where the players just can't give that level of obsessive perfection that he demands. It's like players have a breaking point and they need a change.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's the same thing that happened to Leeds United um, two years ago under Bielsa where they were just fucking running away with a championship and it was that style of football that he implements where it's just you know 90 minutes of just solid pressing and you know 110% and then the waves came off with like the last two months of the season and they just sort of imploded
0: yeah are are they supposed to get promoted into the Premier League this year they're there they're about aren't they I don't know I don't know what's actually happening now what's the communication been like how's it I haven't been following it week to week, but if the if it is if if it if they draw a line in the sand and they go right, we're going to take the standings where they are. I think Leeds is in a position to get back into the Premier League, which I think would be a cool addition because even though like kids of today don't look at Leeds as a big club, historically Leeds is a huge club.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember when Leeds were last in the in the Premier League, we had some great grudge matches against Arsenal
0: and. Personally, from your perspective, are you missing playing football?
1: Absolutely. I mean, when you play football at any level, and I'm at the, at the very, very bottom, like, I'm at your league. Um, I mean, your whole week revolves around it. You're training Tuesday and Thursday, and you're just, you know, you're just itching to get out and play
0: on the Saturday. It just, it consumes your whole week. It's such a social thing as well for men that a lot of men probably don't want to necessarily admit to but being part of a team is so important for men especially i can only speak for men
1: yeah i've been with my team this is my third season um and like when i first come into a group of guys i'm usually really like kind of not um i'm not gonna say insecure but like in that kind of dynamic like like you know,
0: coming into a new team and stuff, I'm usually quite reserved. Um, Like, I don't really open up. It's nearly like you're observing the status quo and seeing how other players yeah. interact and it's like, how can I slot in and find my niche and bring my own personality over time? But you don't want to be the asshole who comes in and cracks wise and everybody's like, who's this fucking prick? Yeah, he's a spell end and I, that was me the first two years so I didn't really interact with anybody and like, they
1: would go on nights out and stuff and drink after the games on Saturday. And I'd always just remove myself from the situation. And then they were looking at the end of the AGM every year. They'll sort of re-elect a new committee every year. And the role of players rep was, was up for grabs. And like before even the AGM kicked off, I had no intention... Of joining the committee and then just uh, it just came over me just all of a sudden I was like right okay maybe I will do this and I put my hand up and as soon as I joined the committee and was behind the scenes of the football club it gave me the confidence to sort of come out of Michelle a bit so this year has sort of been my, my year where I have sort of interacted with the guys and made more of an effort so I've really I'm, I'm really missing it now the camaraderie.
0: Can I ask uh, from your perspective what have the benefits of playing in a team been for you?
1: Do you mean like what do I take you know like in my normal
0: like working life or like personal life like what's the. I suppose just focusing on like being part of a sports team while it is just 90 minutes on a Saturday or a Sunday you get a lot of people get so much more from being part of a team and learning how you interact with different people and different characters it's like. Uh, is there anything that team sports has brought to you personally as a benefit?
1: It probably is not that I can pinpoint. Um, I'm not totally aware, but I'm, I'm sure, you know, they're probably, yeah, I'd say it probably does make you more confident. Doesn't it? It gives you a bit of a confidence. Um, for me, it's just, it's just the balls of plan. I've always loved plan. Um, like, I mean, when I was younger, I was always put off um, football and organized sports. Like I came from Cooktown and the town was so segregated when it came to the likes of sports Um, I remember the, the, the local team was up at the high school, which was a, a Protestant high school and just the idea of, of uh, myself going up and playing was always kind of a taboo and that always put me off. So I missed out on team sports. All through teenage years, I I didn't pick up football again until I was eighteen. Um, and actually, it's funny because I remember, I remember my first game at eighteen, playing for the local team, and I was I was, essentially, the only Catholic up there in the team. And I came along one Saturday after two or three training sessions. I was put into the team and I came up on the Saturday to play. And I remember sitting at the front of the bus by myself. And the rest of the team were, like, like playing songs on their phone, trying to intimidate me. Gee. I just thought it was so bizarre. Like, uh, this was my the team, like, my own team. I remember, like, going in and getting changed then, putting the jersey on. And one of the guys came over beside me and took his T-shirt off and sort of turned around. So his back was facing me and he had, like, this huge tattoo of, I think it was the flute band he was in. Whoa. And the whole team just started laughing at me. And that was the last, that was the first and last time I played for the team. And I didn't pick football up again until I think I was 22.
0: That's a crazy experience. Again, it's something we don't have to deal with in the South. And it's something that I think fascinates us about the North, like growing up in that context.
1: Yeah. And I remember, like, I was never the greatest Gaelic player, but like, I, I think I played Gaelic up until maybe 16. And the communication from your coaches and things at, at, at Gaelic was like you couldn't be playing soccer as well right and those those guys who did try to play both were always you know taken aside and and
0: and encouraged obviously to drop the soccer and and uh, continue with the Gaelic in terms of positives the team that you're playing with now what has kept you with that team
1: um our team it's kind of funny because we play in the area so we're playing all these teams around like listen to you like being from Limerick but like Bangor and different parts of East Belfast and stuff so we're playing we're we play some really rough teams like like on a Saturday get up to like a house in the state and there's like fucking the cans of Carlsberg all around the pitch and stuff and bonfire subs yeah <laughs> And the subs will be sitting there like smoking cigarettes and stuff. We play some really rough teams and our team we have a really good image of our team. Like it's it's just a real good bunch of guys. It's a cross community club. So it's just a lot of our team's musicians as well. Like um like we've we've, we've, we've like, we we like we've a couple of famous people on the team as well, actually. Um have you have you heard of have you heard of the band Two Door Cinema Club? I have. Yeah, well the guitarist Sam. He he plays for our club. What position? He's usually in midfield. Great great footballer as well. Really good footballer. Um, that's a strange one as well. When I first found out that he was in Two Door Cinema Club, um, because I I never really we never really interacted at training or the matches or anything. And then as soon as I found out he was in Two Door Cinema Club, I went to training like starstruck and. <laughs> dead talk I have ever been so nervous to talk to him like
0: I think the nice t- thing about team sports as well is that once you do get involved it's a bit of a meritocracy where like people appreciate the effort you put in in training and on the pitch it doesn't matter what your background is or what you do and uh, the outside world It's it's people judge you for what what you do on the pitch I think it's a really really cool thing because in life a lot of people make judgments on where you grew up, what you did in school, what you do professionally. Whereas in sport, there's like a great equalizer where effort and ability should be what you're judged on to some extent.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess what attracts people to sport, isn't it? It's an escape
0: for a lot of people. And as well, something that you probably haven't thought about in terms of benefits, but you did mention is that... For people who don't play team sports, the challenge of trying to get back to a winning position when you're two goals behind and banding together as a team and taking adversity on the chin game to game, week to week, it's it's something you can take into life. It's like it, you know that you're never beaten. It, like it's It's not done until the whistle blows to some extent.
1: Yeah. And I think even, I think a lot of employers like to see that on your CV as well. If somebody's in a team sport, it does, it goes a long way.
0: And as well, you can put on the the CV, uh, playing the same team as your man from Two Door Cinema Club. (laughs) Whatever weight that carries. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've really missed it. So I have. Um, well I suppose hopefully for you and hopefully for everybody we can get back to some sort of normality in the next couple of months who knows when it'll be but fuck it I know I'm looking forward to it um, Pierce man I'm conscious of time It's it's been a pleasure chatting to you and whenever this whole crazy situation finishes you'll have to come down to Dublin for a live one absolutely absolutely looking forward to it um,
1: until, until the next one
0: alright brother Peace.